0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our two experts on this episode on acute heart failure are Dr. Brian Steinhardt and Dr. Eric Litovsky. Dr. Steinhardt is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital. He is certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. He has conducted and published original research in cardiac biomarkers and has been a delegate for Heart and Stroke Foundation Canada and for the American Heart Association. Dr. Eric Letofsky is the Chief of the Emergency Department at the Credit Valley Hospital in Mississauga, Ontario. He is director of the Division of Emergency Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he is a full professor in the Faculty of Medicine. It was only about three weeks ago today that we launched the website, and in order to make this the best educational experience for you that we can, we need your feedback. Please give us your feedback. There are two ways you can give us your feedback. One is by emailing me directly at Anton, that's A-N-T-O-N, at emergencymedicinecases.com. And the other way is to go to the individual episodes on the website and type in your comments in the comments section. Acute heart failure remains an often difficult clinical diagnosis for emergency physicians to make despite its high prevalence. Its clinical presentation overlaps with many other causes of acute shortness of breath. Many of the historical, physical examination, and x-ray findings have poor accuracy. In addition, there are multiple confusing and complicated classification systems for heart failure that are not applicable to EM practice in a practical or useful way. To top it off, in contrast to chronic CHF, there is very little good hard evidence for any of the medications we use for acute heart failure. In this episode, we will attempt to demystify acute heart failure to provide a useful classification system that helps guide ED management and to suggest the best management for these difficult patients. When we don't have any good hard evidence for managing ED patients, we look to the experts with experience. Dr. Steinhardt and Dr. Latovsky have a combined clinical experience of about 60 years, so I'm sure you're just as psyched as I am to hear their take on acute heart failure. The episode will be divided into two sections. In the first section, we'll present a case where the diagnosis is not so obvious and discuss the usefulness of historical features, physical examination findings, lab tests, and imaging. In particular, we'll discuss the utility of BNP and whether or not we should be using it in Canadian emergency departments. In the second section, we will present a useful classification system for acute heart failure, and discuss three cases that reflect this system. We'll review the best practice for, the, for different medications and ventilatory support. Finally, we'll end with a discussion on how to best determine disposition. So let's jump right into the first case. We have a 60-year-old man with a known history of COPD who presents to your emergency department with increasing dyspnea, orthopnea, and cough over the past three days. He reports coughing up some yellow sputum with no hemoptysis. He denies chest pain, ankle swelling, PND, calf pain, or fever. He takes puffers for his COPD, which he took many times that day, but he forgot the names of them. He denies any other significant medical history and has no known risk factors for MI or thromboembolic disease. He quit smoking many years ago. On exam, he appears alert but has peripheral cyanosis and is in moderate respiratory distress. His blood pressure is 140 over 90, heart rate is 120, respiratory rate is 32, O2 saturation is 90% on a non-rebreather, and his temperature is 36.5. His chest examination reveals a barreled chest with diffuse expiratory wheezes and no crackles. His JVP is 3 centimeters above the sternal angle. His heart sounds are distant. He has no palpable hepatomegaly. His calves are equal in size and non-tender with scant pedal edema. An ECG reveals sinus tachycardia with evidence of right heart strain. The chest x-ray shows hyperinflated lungs with flattened diaphragms, dark lung fields, and some increased hilar markings. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the case and of acute heart failure, let's look at the bigger picture and ask for patients who present to the emergency department with acute shortness of breath, what in general are we looking for? What's our differential diagnosis in general? Dr. Lutowski?
1: So my big picture approach to patients who are short of breath is when I pick up a chart of someone who's short of breath, I ask myself, is the patient having a cardiac problem causing the shortness of breath? pericardial effusion, congestive heart failure, for example. Number two, is the patient having a primary respiratory problem, such as a pneumonia, pneumothorax? Number three, is the patient having a hematological problem? Is the patient anemic? We need hemoglobin to carry oxygen to the tissues. Is the patient severely anemic, causing the shortness of breath or high output heart failure? And fourthly, could the patient be having some kind of neuromuscular problem? We need inadequate adequate bellows to adequately oxygenate and ventilate. And patients with neuromuscular diseases can present with a sense of shortness of breath as well. So, those are my four big major categories of uh, dyspnea cardiac, respiratory, hemological, and neuromuscular when I see a patient with a shortness of breath.
0: And, Dr. Steinhardt, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Well, it's my approach as well. But I would add, uh, as in any uh, presentation, somatoform disorders are there as an etiology in the background uh, to be considered when. The common and the serious uh, etiologies have been ruled out and and there's nothing tangible to grasp. It can uh, present itself in many weird and wonderful ways, including shortness of breath.
0: So knowing that there's a considerable overlap between COPD and acute heart failure presentations, what features in the history and physical do you particularly look for to help you distinguish between these two entities, and decide whether they have one or the other or both.
2: If you have past history available, uh, either from relatives, from the patient, or from your health records, and this presentation mimics a previous presentation with the same complaint and a confirmed diagnosis of either COPD or heart failure or something else, then that raises your suspicion for the same etiology, everything else being equal. You know, I don't think it's any single item in the history of physical
1: or ancillary testing which favors COPD versus congestive heart failure. It's, it's really features from all categories, which helps you put together a picture of heart failure. There's historical features of increasing weight gain, edema, or perhaps uh, lack of appropriate use of medications or increased salt intake, which are important historical features. There's a very important physical features third heart sounds rails, peripheral edema, which suggests heart failure. Uh, There are important uh, chest x-ray findings, which suggest acute pulmonary edema, and there are important ECG findings. So it's really putting the whole picture together using history, physical, and uh, testing. But it's important to remember that sometimes it's very difficult, in the initial stages anyways, in the initial few minutes, to make a, to try, distinguish between COPD and congestive heart failure. And in fact, it's not uncommon to start treating both diseases at the same time. It's not uncommon for us to give oxygen, start Ventil and Atrovent, and give a shot of LASIK's uh, furosemide, at the same time while we're sorting out the difference between the two.
0: Does the literature help us out in terms of how good each specific history or physical examination Teacher is?
2: So I'm a proud Canadian, and Sir William Osler was Canadian and he was knighted and is one of our heroes for his bedside diagnosis, acumen. This was at the turn of the century, and he was a role model for thousands of physicians since then and has been literally placed on a pedestal throughout the world for his bedside acumen. Unfortunately for Sir William Osler, Robust research has evolved and technology and much of what Sir William Osler touted as being dogma and irrefutable for a bedside diagnosis cannot be supported today and acute heart failure is one of those diseases and the shorter breath patient is uh, one of those complaints. So with that in mind, uh, when we look at meta-analyses of this very uh, point, what is relevant on history and physical examination to rule in heart failure and rule out the other cause, there is not much we can hang our hat on. When Eric and I were interns, it was really easy to diagnose the short-of-breath patient. You know, they had a history of requiring two or three pillows at night to sleep and they might even wake up and sit upright because they're short of breath and they get better and they come in with a few crackles and we would say this is this is heart failure lasix admit to the hospital and it was easy but we were wrong (laughs) we didn't know we were wrong nobody knew we were wrong but the literature has told us it's not that easy anymore in fact it's getting worse you Alluded to a combined experience here uh, of over 60 years in emergency medicine. I, for one, it, find it more and more difficult to diagnose these shorter breath patients because they're getting older, they're, they're surviving their cardiac and pulmonary insults. Whereas when we started out, they died, right? They had a heart attack. You put them up on a ward or a CCU, you gave them morphine, you watched them die. Now, Things, thankfully, are a little bit better. At times, it is so difficult. Even the best clinician, the most astute clinician with history, physical, and chest x-ray can be extremely difficult, as Eric says. It's not getting easier. So that said, there's not much to hang your head on. A past history of heart failure is ranked with a likelihood ratio of 5. And as we know, 10 is absolute for ruling in, or, or fairly absolute for ruling in a diagnosis. PND is only 2.6, so you really can't hang your hat on that. Uh, Likewise, orthopnea, swelling of the ankles. On physical examination, the only pertinent finding where you could hang your hat on to rule in heart failure seems to be an S3, very rare, even with electronic augmentation to try and bring out S3s. They're not that common. The chest x-ray, Time and time again, uh, the literature uh, states, in the best of circumstances, it's 80% accurate for the final diagnosis of COPD versus heart failure, and el- the electrocardiogram, uh, though, has several features that can assist and support, and it's one of the pieces of the puzzle that Eric has alluded to, that there's nothing absolute one way or the other, other than atrial fibrillation, is m- more supportive for a patient in heart failure, uh, but the likelihood ratios are not there to be useful. I'd like to make a plea for people to really
1: look at volumes that is carefully in the emergency department. So I don't think we do it very well in the emergency department. I don't think we do it often enough in the emergency department, but I think it's really of critical importance in patients who are short of breath to look at the uh, JVP and see if it's distended or not. GVP will give you an immense amount of information in patients who are short of breath. If it's elevated, you have to think of heart failure, right side of heart failure, with the most common cause of right sided heart failure being the left side of heart failure. Uh, it makes you think of pericardial combinad, and Of course, it makes you think of pneumothorax too. But I think it's really important to look at uh, jugular venous distension in the emergency department and
2: measure it correctly in, this, in, the, in the proper body position. And, and the science goes a step further that if you were to apply jugular reflux, it's it's even a touch more significant for ruling in acute heart failure.
0: Reviewing here about the importance of the history and physical examination in the diagnosis of acute heart failure, while it's really a constellation of signs and symptoms in combination with the chest x-ray and ECG that will give you the overall picture of whether this is heart failure or not, I'd like to just review some of the most important Historical and physical examination features according to the JAMA, the Rational Clinical Examination Series. The four most important historical features in terms of best likelihood ratios for acute heart failure are one, a previous history of heart failure, two, PND, three, orthopnea, and four, dyspnea on exertion. In terms of the physical exam, the foremost important physical exam features for acute heart failure that have the best likelihood ratios are an s3 jvd crackles and leg edema again there's very few of these that you can hang your hat on but i think it is important to know which ones have the best likelihood ratios one last note about the physical examination in patients who present an acute heart failure when there is a low pulse pressure This is a marker of low cardiac output and confers a relative risk of death of 2.5. A high pulse pressure, on the other hand, should trigger you to consider a high output cause of heart failure, such as anemia or thyrotoxicosis. Good, let's talk uh, a little bit about the ECG. Uh, Dr. Latofsky, I know you love to talk about ECGs. When a patient presents with suspected acute heart failure, what are the things that you're looking for in particular on an ECG?
1: So the ECG is a critical component of our ability to assess patients who are short of breath. It's rare to get a normal ECG, obviously, in patients who are short of breath, unless patients are are short of breath because of anemia or neuromuscular issues. But most cardiorespiratory diseases will produce some kind of ECG findings, especially the cardiac causes of shortness of breath. Arrhythmias are one of the most common causes of congestive heart failure. Brady arrhythmias, arrhythmias, and especially atrial fibrillation. And patients who have a history of atrial fibrillation are prone to heart failure. So you're looking for arrhythmias. You're looking for ischemic changes, signs of ischemia, signs of uh, non-Q-wave infarction, signs of STEMIs even in patients who are diabetic or the elderly patients. And then you have to look at uh, the remnants of pertrophy, ventricular hypertrophy or evidence of bundle branch blocks. Patients with left bundle branch block will have some left ventricular dysfunction. Patients who have evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy either have chronic hypertension that hasn't been treated adequately enough or may have chronic valvular disease, such as aortic stenosis or mitral insufficiency that cause the left ventricular or left atrial hypertrophy. So it's critical to look at the ECG carefully, which may give you a lot of information particularly patients who present with new acute pulmonary edema who who may have a normal ECG, but a new murmur, you might want to think of an acute mitral insufficiency, for example, as the precipitant for the acute pulmonary edema. uh, It's seen in patients with uh, mitral valve prolapse, for example. So the ECG is
2: critical in the assessment of patients who are short of breath. And the corollary of that is the evidence points that condition where you want to rule out heart failure A normal electrocardiogram supports that. They state a likelihood ratio of 0.64. Of course, to rule out any disease, one wants a negative likelihood ratio of 0.1. This is 0.64. One being a useless test, right? So it's a bit more supportive. As Eric says, it's a piece of the puzzle. A normal electrocardiogram is more supportive or no heart failure, but something else.
0: The two ECG findings with the highest likelihood ratios for acute heart failure are atrial fibrillation and new T-wave changes. Okay, let's move on to the chest X-ray. How useful do you find the chest X-ray in diagnosing heart failure in the emergency department? and what aspects of the chest X-ray do you find the most useful?
1: I think the X-ray is of critical importance. I think you're looking for a, a number of features on the X-ray. First of all, you're looking for the positive signs of heart failure. You're looking for pulmonary vascular distribution in mild heart failure, curly B-lines in edema in the more moderate heart failure, and the, for bat wing alveolar edema in more severe heart failure. And, and then, of course, you're looking for in COPD, you're looking for hyperinflated lungs, you're looking for perhaps a more narrow, smaller heart, and perhaps signs of pneumonia, which may have precipitated the COPD exacerbation. So, you know, I think the, the x-ray itself is uh, a very important tool. Sometimes it's hard to get a proper PA in lateral in the emergency department. Patients are critical. Sometimes we can just get a portable x-ray. Sometimes it's just supine, so it, it's often inadequate. But it, Like the ECG, like the history, and like the physical examination, there's no single tool which either rules in or rules out heart failure from COPD. It's really the constellation of all the the historical features, plus all these diagnostic tests,
2: which is really going to help you differentiate heart failure from COPD. As we alluded to, there's COPD patients out there with congestive heart failure who normally have a chest x-ray that looks like a dog's breakfast. And they come in with an exacerbation and we're looking for the signs and I look for the signs that Eric has espoused. I think it's important to try and get your hands on an x-ray that this patient might have in in your hospital, like a discharge x-ray once they were stabilized from a previous admission and compare this presentation and this acute x-ray with their best looking x-ray.
0: One last point about the chest X-ray in patients with acute heart failure is that the X-ray in a small minority of patients may actually be normal. This is especially true if they present within just a few hours of flash pulmonary edema. It occasionally takes time for the fluid to show on the X-ray in any significant manner. Do you ever worry about giving bronchodilators to CHF patients? No,
1: no, no. Uh you can see wheezing in congestive heart failure as you can in COPD exacerbations, but I uh, uh, if their patients are wheezing it's because there's bronchospasm plus or minus bronchial edema and I don't have any problems or reservations giving ventolin bronchodilators to patients
2: even if they turn out to be congestive heart failure. In fact, there have been studies around that that support Eric's uh view around and that kind of rationally you think if the heart is being stressed and you're going to put a beta adrenergic added to the scene it's going to have a negative outcome on, on, on the cardiac status but to date uh, the literature does not support that so I think we all use shotgun therapy but I think of all the medicines and, and, the, and the bullets we use when with their shotgun therapy Bronco dilators are the most benign. Unchain my, heart.
3: Unchain my heart. Baby let me be. Unchain my heart. Unchain, my heart. Unchain, my heart. Unchain my heart. 'Cause you don't care about me. My heart.
0: Let's move on to BNP. Uh, Some researchers have suggested that the use of BNP in the emergency department may actually reduce hospitalization rates, reduce length of stay, help prognosticate, and possibly even uh, improve survival in patients with decompensated heart failure. Yet there seems to be a lot of controversy around whether we should be using BNP in the emergency department to help diagnose heart failure. Without BNP, we're correct in the diagnosis of heart failure about 80% of the time, uh, which isn't so great. A BNP of less than 100 has a pretty good sensitivity for ruling out heart failure, although, probably most of those patients who have a BNP of less than 100, we probably knew already from the clinical picture that they didn't have heart failure. Conversely, when the BNP is over 500 it may help us to diagnose to rule in heart failure but again most of those patients we probably knew had heart failure to begin with and it might not help us where it's difficult is in those patients like the one the case that we're talking about where we're not sure whether it's heart failure or something else some argue that the BNP will most likely be in the middle range in a patient who has intermediate risk and so it doesn't really help us right now presently in 2010 there's very few emergency departments in canada that actually have bnp dr steinhardt as a researcher in bnp first do you think we should be using bnp in the emergency departments in canada and if so in what situations should we be using it?
2: So I'd like to skirt that question and just step back for a moment. Well, as we've been talking about, we'd like to get a little better with our accuracy because we're frustrated by history, physical, chest X-ray, and electrocardiogram interpretation. We feel we need something more in the emergency department that can quickly help us as clinicians. So BNP has evolved this stands for beta-naturetic peptide. And it's a hormone that is released from strained myocardium. And any cause of myocardium straining will elevate this, this hormone. It's called a hormone because we use it as a biomarker, but it is vasoactive. It actually has some pharmacological properties. In fact, it's been manufactured into a drug trade named nasiratide, but we are talking about it in, a, in its diagnostic biomarker sense. So, in the United States and elsewhere, it is standard of care to use either this natriuretic peptide, the class of peptide that we're talking about, or its cousin, quote-unquote, n terminal pro-BNP in elucidating and helping the clinician To rule in or rule out heart failure and you've alluded that to the fact that in many cases the clinician knows the diagnosis anyway the high probability uh, heart failure or the the low probability for heart failure uh, and we don't need a biomarker to help us our clinical acumen is pretty good but you've also alluded to many studies that show when compared to a gold standard uh, diagnosis for heart failure, we're, we're missing about 20%. And that's in that group where it's the dog's breakfast, the COPD, pneumonia, pulmonary embolus, CHF patient that comes in short of breath. Like, How are we going to figure this out? And so I agree with your conclusion that in most of these cases, the biomarker is in, in that indeterminate range. Throughout the world, it's being used now in a categorical way, which means below a certain threshold uh, of value. These results are negative for heart failure. Above a certain value, and you mentioned 500, uh, for BNP. NT-proBNP has different units, obviously, and different levels. So that's positive for heart failure. And we as clinicians want the quick answer. As as does any professional. We, we, we want to know quickly a test that will tell us we don't have to go any further. We can start treating this patient definitively, appropriately. We don't have to shotgun them anymore. And we want a test that will say yes or no to us. That's the heuristic approach to critical thinking. And and we're it's just a natural consequence of slugging it out in the emergency department day or night and trying to get volume through and on all the pressures that we have. So that's why BNP exists. Unfortunately, it's not that accurate to rule in, even when it's above the suggested rule-in levels. The likelihood ratios for BNP that you quote at 500 is somewhere in the order of four. In fact, a meta-analysis by Andrew Worster, our colleague in McMaster, Of all the literature for BNP and and NT-proBNP, of all the literature in the world, when he summarizes it, both BNP and NT-proBNP have a likelihood ratio of three to rule in heart failure. That's an amalgamation of all the science to date. Three is not five and it's not ten. It's not one, but it's not great. So to use it in its traditional categorical way, I think, is... Being over generous to its performance parameters. And and I don't support its use that way.
0: Dr. Steinhardt was the lead author on an article out of the journal American College of Cardiology, 2009, volume 54, issue number 16, called Improving the Diagnosis of Acute Heart Failure Using a Validated Prediction Model. This paper, I think, really helped us with those patients who are in that gray zone, in the intermediate zone, and uh, Dr. Steinhardt here will explain the paper to us and what his take is on it.
2: Anton, what we did is we took a Canadian study uh, that had analyzed anti BNP in a, in a traditional use and we took the raw data and, and just looked at its absolute values And we try to combine it with a clinical parameter and see where we get with uh, diagnosing or ruling out acute heart failure. But we decided to, you know, keep it simple, stupid—the KISS principle—and just get the doc's pre-test probability after history, physical, EKG, chest X-ray. What did the doc think was the chance of this? undifferentiated, shorter-breath patient have for heart failure, from 0 to 100. And we used that parameter, and we used the absolute value of the NT-proBNP, not positive or negative or indeterminate, just whatever it was, 2 to 20,000. And we threw it in a mathematical blender, and we came out with a prediction model probability for heart failure. And we found when we compared it with the ultimate gold standard that we have available today, which is adjudicated diagnoses, some 60 days post-index visit, we found that when the doc really thought it was or wasn't heart failure, the model didn't do any better than the clinician. But when the doc was in that gray zone, the pulling of the hair kind of gray zone, I think it's called gray zone because the doc's hair turns gray, and that's why I have so many gray hairs. But in that critical subpopulation, 50% of the time, the model appropriately redirected the doc to say, no, it's not heart failure, or yes, it is heart failure. And in the other 50%, it said it, it couldn't help, but it did not hurt. It did not mislead. So it's it's kind of a novel approach to using this information. It's a mathematical model. It uses Clinician gestalt, and uh, it's worthy of prospective trial.
0: So, just to clarify, there everyone who's complaining that in these patients that we need something to help us diagnose it the most, where these patients that we're not sure whether it's heart failure or something else, they're all saying that BNP really doesn't help. Your study is saying 50% of the time it'll change our minds from this indeterminate gray zone to, yes, this is heart failure, no, this isn't heart failure, and we'll be right?
2: Well, it's, it might. It might help. I, th- I think it's, it's it's too generous to say it will help. Uh, it, it, it needs prospective validation to, to say that. I have to tell you, the science repeatedly has shown ROC curves that shows benefit for using... BNP in its traditional sense. My model is not its traditional sense, right? It's, it's a continuous variable. But the science, including Canadian data, has these ROC curves that sh- show definite improvement in clinical diagnosis using BNP, definite savings of money and decreased hospital readmissions, not mortality, by the way.
0: I see. How much does a one BNP test cost?
2: No. well if you buy one case it's around $40 and that, and I'm referring to anti pro bnp bnp mm-hmm. is cheaper but if you buy uh, a lot or you uh, there are centers now that have it in 18 dollars 18 per per okay. sample
0: so not too expensive
2: it's not the cost of a ct scan or an echo or you know, other sure. other tests that we might uh, have to go on to. On the other hand, it's not the cost of a
1: sodium or a CBC. It's not insignificant. You know, you, you, in a department like ours, we see two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy patients a day now. Uh, how many of those patients present with short of breath? Now, I'm speaking as an emergency department director. Now, I'm wearing my hat right now as an emergency department director. Um, without convincing data that BMP helps in the emergency department clinical decision making, uh, without you know more better data suggesting its usefulness. Um, it's not something that I've adopted right now. Uh, you know, my fear is that as soon as you allow emergency physicians to order, get a test, or any kind of physician to get a test, the, the natural tendency, for whatever reason, is to use it. You know, my concern is that uh, for the 25 patients who present to my emergency department with shortness of breath, there's going to be 20 BNPs ordered, probably 18 inappropriately. That's a lot of money. It costs over 365 days a year. That's a lot of money. These days of cost containing uh restricted budgets you know we're talking a lot of money i have to tell you for
2: a test that really just hasn't you know given us a lot of bang for our buck just to be devil's advocate I, i know it's not part of my persona but eric mentions it's not like sodium and cbc but the very point is how useful is a cbc and a sodium right and how many thousands of cbcs and sodiums do we order a week Sure, I guess so, it goes to so the general... So there's a balance, right? The general and, and principle. This, of, this is the new kid on the block, and I, and I understand and I support the trepidation that uh, that goes on with a, a new kid on the block, and I, I think it should be trialed in a very restricted, close manner, and let's see what we get. And There may be a role for it at some point, but I think maybe perhaps as an adjunct
1: to everything else, we depend on the history of the physical examination, the chest X-ray and the ECG, and not to replace those important parts of the assessment that we have to depend on.
2: Unfortunately, the the cardiologists who are the prime uh, stakeholders in this, even the academic ones who agree with what Eric and I are, are, are saying, still would like an index visit, a BNP-NT, pro BNP value, more for their baseline, for their maintenance of therapy. There's, BNP and anti-proBNP, as you know, is not just for diagnosing uh, or not diagnosing acute heart failure, but has shown some scientific evidence for for being a benefit in, in maintaining these patients and what's the right therapy and adjusting therapy for ongoing months, several months down the road. That's comparing the monitor, monitoring their progress, so for their, heart failure exactly. goodness, once established, right, right. Right. So for that reason, they're saying, and you the know purpose. what, draw it in the emergency room, you know, and, and so we could get the baseline of value. But then it it has a distinct chance of being abused by our colleagues and by us because it's there, you know, and that's the natural tendency.
1: Okay, and and, and perhaps it may have a role in uh, you know once the diagnosis of heart failure is established, we still don't have a good tool. Uh, for prognostic purposes, to determine which patients are safe to discharge and which patients need to be admitted, so perhaps can, uh, you know it could be looked at as part of a larger prospective trial uh, for, to develop a tool for that kind of prognostic
3: importance. Which patients?
0: Do you order a troponin in if you present with heart failure? So, your
1: question is which patients do I order troponin on? Patients who have heart failure? It's easy. All of them. All of them. Absolutely. You okay. have to remember that one of the causes of acute pulmonary edema is ischemic heart disease, acute decompensation of contractility because of ischemia. Remember, think of the causes of congestive heart failure increased preload, increased afterload, arrhythmias, and contractility issues, primarily because of ischemic heart disease. A lot of patients, our older folks and diabetics, present with atypical uh, symptoms of, of ischemia, sh- just shortness of breath alone. The elderly, uh, you know, as a manifestation of their myocardial infarction, present more with shortness of breath than chest pain. The elderly often present with silent ischemia. I ordered troponins in all patients with c- acute congestive heart failure.
2: Certainly makes sense, but unfortunately, congestive heart failure alone can bump your troponin, right? So... Then you're in between a rock and a hard place. I agree with what Erica said. I try and be a little bit more judicious. Certainly, the elderly with new onset heart failure, anyone with new onset heart failure, uh, they get an appropriate timed troponin. Of course, we have to keep in mind in the background, as I alluded to, troponin is released from damaged myocardium, but it could be damaged for any reason, right? not just ischemic heart disease.
0: As you were alluding to, Dr. Steinhardt, the troponin may be elevated just on the basis of CHF alone.
1: Correct. You don't know that. In the emergency department, you're not going to know whether the troponin is is because of a primary ischemic heart disease or secondary
2: to the left ventricular dysfunction. There's no way you're going to know that in the emergency department, unfortunately. In of itself, of course, like BNP, for whatever reason, assuming it's not due to a spurious result or decreased renal clearance or a rise in troponin is a bad thing for whatever reason right i mean there's no doubt of all the controversies around troponin a high the higher your troponin is for whatever reason for whatever your presentation it's more morbidity mortality down the road right but how do we act on that talk about guidelines and prediction models there's nothing to lead us on how to deal with this one value
0: yeah, I believe there was a study that reiterated that elevated troponin, for whatever reason, right. significantly increased your mortal- mortality. Correct. So I mean,
1: troponin goes up in sepsis. It goes up in uh, post-cardioversion in, in renal patients. It may be elevated, right. whatever, but it's a marker for for uh, bad
0: outcome. Yeah, I mean, we're often hearing yeah. from the specialists, you know, well the troponin is elevated because they're in renal failure, obviously, right. and so why should I admit the patient based on that alone? Mm-hmm and so i usually tell them about this study that
2: right well as you know the studies say it's not decreased gfr if we're going to go to troponins it's not the decreased gfr that affects the rise in troponin i troponin t yes but troponin i is raised in the uremic patient because of subclinical uremic cardiomyopathy eh? it's that irritation right they're prone to pericardial effusions whatnot and it's that irritation and inflammation that is affecting the epimyocardium that is thought to cause the chronic elevation in this patient cohort, not decreased.
0: When working up a patient for heart failure in the emergency department, It's important to understand that about half of these patients will have a known precipitant. Some common ones include a change in salt intake or a change in medication. Some of the causes of heart failure need to be identified and addressed quickly in the emergency department, such as ischemia, cardiac arrhythmias, severe hypertension, and valvular dysfunction, for example, a uh, mitral valve uh, regurgitation from a papillary muscle rupture. Um, Other causes to think about are cardiomyopathy, especially in the peripartum period uh, and uh, associated with thyroid disease such as thyrotoxicosis or myxedema coma. And lastly, uh, it's important to think of myocarditis as a cause for heart failure. In the next little bit, we discuss the oh-so-popular subject in emergency medicine of ultrasound. Here, we're going to talk a little bit about formal ultrasound and bedside ultrasound.
2: But An echo soon, very soon, rather than later, would be important because we miss critical valvular disease. We just don't hear it. It could be so tight, like a aortic stenosis, uh, that we don't pick it up so in what situations
0: would you push for a formal echo in the emergency department for your heart failure patients
1: so i'll give you an example was a couple months ago i had a young male who presented congestive heart failure young male with no past medical history on no medications with an ecg that was essentially normal besides a slight tachycardia that showed no evidence of Uh, hypertrophy, or any evidence of left ventricular strain. So no evidence of chronic hypertension. So why is a young male uh, in acute heart failure with no evidence of hypertensive heart disease, either by history, by physical examination, or ECG? So he was somebody who I called my cardiologist to do do an emergency echo. In fact, he had acute mitral insufficiency and needed to be transferred to a center for acute valvular surgery. So that's typically the kind of patient who really needs an urgent echocardiogram. Uh, The other patient, obviously, who needs an urgent echocardiogram is the, uh, again, patient who present with um, new murmurs in the signs of ischemia. Uh, For example, patients present with acute inferior infarction can disrupt their mitral valve, leading to acute uh, valvular insufficiency, and again, those patients need urgent uh, transfer to a center that can do valvular repair in the setting of a uh, post-infarct patient. So certainly in the presence of any new murmur, and uh, I it's, it's difficult to listen to murmurs to the heart and setting of an emergency department, but it's really, really critical that you get the patient in a quiet area where you can listen to, to, to a new murmur.
0: Do you think there's a future for bedside echo in the emergency department for helping us diagnose the causes and whether the patient has CHF or not for bedside ultrasound?
2: About 50% of patients... With acute heart failure have systolic dysfunction, which you can pick up on an echo. It's nice to know. 40% of them have diastolic dysfunction, which you can pick up on an echo, but you need to be a really slick echocardiographer, and you need to have a really good machine, and everything has to be optimal. And even then, there's interobserver variability. So echo will support the diagnosis for acute heart failure 90% of the time. We're not going to do anything different, whether it's systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction. We we in the emergency department are not going to do anything per se different because of that. It's not going to change my management I- immediately. Uh, and, and, and to get an eMERGE doc who hasn't gone through two years of echocardiography training and certainly doesn't have the multimillion-dollar machine that they have up on the cardiology floor, I, I see no immediate future for that. I, I think patients who present with shortness of breath,
1: NYD, need a quick ED echo by their physician to reload pericardial tamponade, especially if there's distending neck pain. So I think there's some value there. It's a diagnosis that's easy to make. And uh, I, I, th- I think it has really important therapeutic implications making a diagnosis of pericardial effusion quickly in the emergency department it's- Looking for ventricular function in the emergency department, I think at this point in time, is beyond the scope of practice for emergency physicians. I think the, the ventricular function is, is subtle. You can really um, be misled by uh, uh, contractility, thinking that it's normal when it really isn't. So I, I my personal belief is that's beyond the scope of emergency medicine at this point. But I do think it's worth looking at for, to, to look for a pericardial tamponade. But beyond that, I think a proper echocardiogram done by the proper cardiology staff is uh, what's important in patients who present with new
2: acute pulmonary edema. But, but in no way should we think of an echocardiogram, regardless of who does it, as being the gold standard for ruling in or out acute heart failure, right? There are many, many, many elderly people walking around who are perfectly fine with systolic dysfunction or a bit of diastolic dysfunction and they may present with a pneumonia and you may pick up their incidental ventricular dysfunction and to be misled by quote a positive echocardiogram would again be suboptimal for the patient. The corollary is also true as we said there are many patients who come in with diastolic dysfunction as a cause of the shortness of breath that will not be picked up Uh, on an echo immediately by by an echocardiographer so you get false positives and false negatives it's time for a little bit of canadian trivia
0: here goes the question which canadian actor wrote himself a check for 20 million dollars and carried it around in his pocket until he earned that amount in one film you guessed it comedian jim carrey Held on to that check until he earned $20 million for his work in Cable Guy. Now, I used to get really upset when I told people where I came from down in Los Angeles because I always got the same response Canada? Wow. Must have been
3: cold. Now I just go along with them. Yes, Canada. It was a frozen, hostile wasteland. And there was much work to be done. If we were to survive the elements, after boring a hole through the ice to find food, my good friend Nantuck and I would build an igloo to protect ourselves from polar bears and flying hockey pucks. Then we would drink a lot of beer. (laughs) And when Nantuck was ready, he would tell me the story of the great moose (laughs) who said to the little squirrel, Hey, Rocky, (laughs) watch me pull a rabbit out of my.
0: (laughs) On to the second part of this episode. Uh, We're going to concentrate now on the management of acute heart failure. Over the last several years, uh, leaders in the heart failure community have been reconsidering how diuretics, nitrates, and inotropes should be used in heart failure. It's surprising that there's very little good data that will tell us who requires these medications, what dosing should be used, and whether they significantly affect long-term outcomes or not. The classic teaching is that acute heart failure is an acute event involving fluid overload, systolic dysfunction, and low cardiac output. However, registry data have shown that acute heart failure population is not this homogenous group of chronic heart failure patients, but rather different types of heart failure patients with various forms of acute decompensation, combinations of comorbidities, and varying degrees of severity. There are a lot of different classifications for heart failure. There's high output versus low output. Right-sided versus left-sided, forward versus backward, systolic versus diastolic, and none of which seem particularly applicable to emergency medicine practice. Over the last few years, a model for how we should approach patients with acute heart failure that helps us guide our therapy with more finesse and may help to prevent serious morbidity and mortality. It divides patients based on their presenting systolic blood pressure. So those who have a systolic blood pressure higher than 160, those who have a systolic blood pressure between 120 and 160, and those who have a systolic blood pressure uh, less than 120. And it suggests specific therapeutic algorithms based on these different presentations. So in the second section of this program, we'll discuss this practical approach to the management of acute heart failure as well as go over the rationale and value of each of the therapies for acute heart failure. So we'll start with a case. An 80-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and obesity comes in by ambulance at 2 a.m. shortly after experiencing a sudden onset of shortness of breath that woke her up from sleep. She denies any recent illness, but does admit to eating a very salty meal at a fine restaurant the evening prior. She has no chest pain, cough, or fever. She has no ankle swelling, no calf pain or swelling. She has no thromboembolic risk factors and denies a history of smoking or of COPD. She takes Norvasc for her hypertension. On exam, her blood pressure is 180 over 110. Heart rate is 115. Respiratory rate is 28, O2 sat is 90% on room air. Her chest exam reveals good air entry bilaterally with crackles to the mid scapula. Her JVP is not visible. Her heart sounds are normal with no murmurs. There is no pedal edema. The ECG shows sinus tachycardia with no ST changes. A stat portable chest X ray reveals no obvious signs of CHF.
1: So you're going to move this lady into a resuscitation room, obviously. You're going to get a, an IV interior. You're going to give her 100% oxygen. Uh, I hate when we people play catch up with oxygen. People start with 28 and 35. And patients in acute respiratory distress need a maximum amount of oxygen. So I like start these people on 100% oxygen while I'm examining them. Uh, while we're getting the ECG and the x-ray, all this kind of stuff. And, and you're giving us all, all the information. But a lot of the, the assessment and treatment is done concurrently with your investigation because it often takes a couple of minutes for the portable x-ray to be done and for the ECG to be done. So, you, you know, if your initial assessment is that this lady is acute pulmonary edema, it sounds like she is. She's probably a kill two heart failure. and You think that she's probably not terribly volume overloaded, but she, may, but she still may be slightly volume overloaded. Um, I think I'd maximize the oxygen, and depending on how ill she looked when I walked into the room, if she was in a lot of respiratory distress, i put in a stat call for my respiratory therapist uh, to come down and uh, to assist with, you know, possibly BiPAPs, initiating BiPAP already. At the same time, I'd give her this lady a nitrous spray to start uh, some preload reduction, and uh, while well, I got a bit, of more, bit more history and did a bit more thorough physical examination. So, so I'd get my RT, I'd get my BiPAP, and depending if she really looked unwell, I'd have the RT, put the BiPAP on it almost immediately. I'd give this lady some nitrates, um, start with some legal nitrates, uh, with a view to pro- probably starting an intravenous uh, nitroglycerin infusion on this lady already because of how severely hypertensive she was. That would be my initial management, but then I, I, I may go on to manage her with diuretics at some point, maybe not immediately. If she was really tachycardic and diaphoretic and looked at well, I don't think the diuretic would necessarily work right away, but um, because she's so hypertensive and is the, the precipitant, most likely precipitant, the increased afterload and the increased systemic vascular resistance is the most likely precipitant. Uh, I'd maximize the oxygen. M- try to maximize the ventilation uh, with BIPAP and uh, uh, decrease preload and uh, decrease afterload with nitrates.
0: So Lasix wouldn't be your first drug in this patient.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you something about Lasix. It, and if, if she really looked unwell, she's clammy, she's diaphoretic, she's got a lot of sympathetic overdrive. The problem with furosemide is, it's is that it works by targeting a single organ, kidney. And and when you have a lot of sympathetic overdrive, you tend to shunt blood away from the splank neck and the kidneys to more important organs, right? Heart, uh, lungs, brain, and so you you decrease perfusion to the kidneys. And in the kidneys, you know, you need adequate glomerular filtration for the furosemide to work. So it's not like I wouldn't use it. I, I may in fact use furosemide. Uh, you know, even if I thought she was euvolemic, I still might use sex. But I don't think it's going to work right away because of, because of the synthetic overdrive. You're not perfusing the kidneys work very well. It simply isn't going to work right away. So I often wait for a little while until I get the nitrates down uh, to decrease preload. And uh, my preference would be to start BiPAP and, uh, and nitrates aggressively on this lady even before I start the furosemide.
2: Okay. Dr. Steinhardt? I, I would largely concur with, with Eric's approach. I would have liked to have seen uh, a chest x-ray that's somewhat supportive of fluid overload, but uh, if we assume this is heart failure, I'll throw uh, a wrench in the works and say I I would probably include some morphine.
0: Okay, why don't we talk about morphine for a bit? So my understanding is that there has been some evidence that morphine actually increases the rate of intubation and possibly increases mortality in acute heart failure so I usually stay away from morphine altogether in heart failure I prefer to use benzodiazepines if the patient appears very anxious which doesn't have any cardiac depressant effects as far as we know so Dr. Steinhardt what would what's your thinking with uh, using morphine
2: I have a lot of experience with it it was a mainstay drug when we started our uh, our careers. That's not to say that it's a good drug, and I will admit that there is no evidence that clearly supports its pharmacologic use in this disease entity. However, I take exception that that there is evidence that it is a bad drug. Again, you're because you're referring to the adhere registry. And for all the limitations of the adhere registry, when you drill into it, and this is the main landmark study that from which you're quoting from, uh, in the registry they use doses 30, 40 milligrams over 12 hours. I'm talking about three to four milligrams one time, maybe, maybe, maybe repeated an hour later, and then they don't even. Se- separate out the confounders. For example, how many of these patients with heart failure actually had severe chest pain and an ACS and you were giving the morphine as much for their pain control as it was for their heart failure? They didn't tease that out in the uh, synopsis of the ADHERE registry. So I'm not swayed by any literature uh, from the ADHERE registry. I think it helps. I'm quite sure it doesn't hurt the patient, and it makes me feel better.
1: Yeah, the reason I would stay away from morphine in this particular patient is that I'm already starting one drug which decreases preload. I'm already starting nitrates. I'm uh, I'm going to titrate the nitrates up pretty high because at a higher doses you get afterload reduction, which is what I'm looking for in this particular patient. But I'm already giving a drug that decreases preload, decreases afterload. And um, I'm also starting BiPAP on this lady right away. So yeah, I, I agree with Brian. I, you know I've used morphine lots of times in the in the past. I just wouldn't use in this particular scenario because I'm starting BIPAP and uh, another drug for preload reduction.
0: This patient did receive nitroglycerin and BIPAP, and still persisted to have signs of pulmonary congestion. What would be your next move? So
2: I think you're raising a, a very appropriate point with nitro and and that is it's difficult to use as as eric says you got to start somewhere and i start with sublingual nitro in fact so i i actually give it to the patients sometimes if, if they're if it's suitable because the nurses can be very busy and it's labor intensive i say here take a squirt every couple of minutes and then i start an art line if we're not getting anywhere uh, solely to have minute by minute uh, instantaneous blood pressure monitoring so i I could free up that nurse and and continue my nitroglycerin. Because then you're going to go to intravenous nitroglycerin. And it, n- intravenous nitroglycerin, you start around 30 mics a minute. Some people start lower. Some people start higher. Some people titrate quickly. Some people don't. But you you may have to get to 160, 200 mics a minute to gain any effect and i'm not sure where you're at with this patient but i'll tell you none of our nurses are going to stand by there and q5 minute increase the nitro drip unless that patient's in extremist we just don't have that kind of dedicated nursing staff that's the challenge with going with intravenous nitro and ramping up to a, to a suitable level it can take a lot of time
0: yeah i i find in numerous times i've written in order for increasing the nitro by 10 mics every five minutes and uh inevitably i come back 20 minutes later half an hour later 40 minutes later and the nurses never seem to want to go up above 50 right. or 60 mics which, which is i think
1: it's why it's so important to initiate bipap early in these patients yeah i think perfect. you have to be really aggressive you know I, I i think that bipap has really revolutionized the treatment of cupomidine in the past 15 years you know 25 years ago it was common for Brian I to intubate patients with pulmonary pul- 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 edema. That's where I gained all my skills. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, for me to intubate a patient with heart failure now is a very, very rare phenomenon. S- since the introduction of BiPAP, it almost never happens. You know, I'll sit there, even with patients who are really looking unwell, you know, you think they're going to code, they're diaphoretic, they're clammy, they're sitting at PCO2s at 60, 70, 80, and you put them on the BiPAP in 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes, they just get gradually better and better and better. They ease the work of breathing. The, the nice thing about BiPAP is that it just maintains the alveolar patency and expiration. So the patient doesn't have to work so hard to open up the alveoli uh, in inspiration. Um, and not only that, when there's a lot of fluid in the lungs, so there's a lot of fluid in the alveoli. And when they have a lot of route, they have a lot of fluid in the, in the alveoli. What the fluid does, it kind of dilutes out the surfactant and makes you know, the surfactant incapable of maintaining the, the patency. So by keeping alveolar patency, it eases the work of breathing, improves oxygenation, improves gas exchange, and improves cardiac output as well. I mean, this is the kind of patient you don't... It, 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 the worst thing you can do is gradually become more and more aggressive in these patients. Then, then you've lost time. And What you want to do is be as aggressive as possible from, uh, from the first minute.
0: And do you have a preference... Between BiPAP and CPAP?
1: Yeah, I mean, we use BiPAP. I mean, you could use CPAP. There's no reason why you couldn't use CPAP. I and mean, if you were in a small hospital, they didn't have, they didn't have BiPAP machines so and only had access to a CPAP machine, you could use CPAP. The nice thing about BiPAP is that uh, while CPAP is static, BiPAP gives you dynamic pressure, uh, positive airway pressure. So it just mirrors normal physiological respirations better, right? So it make, it's more comfortable for the patient. That's the only reason you use BiPAP as opposed to CPAP. So in inspiration, it's one pressure. Expiration, it's, it's a lower pressure. So it's just easier. It's more comfortable for the patient. But you could easily use CPAP for, for a patient with pulmonary edema. If that's the only machine you'd had, absolutely you'd use it. It'd just be more cumbersome for the patient. It'd be harder to tolerate. That's all.
0: Okay. Going back to the case here, the patient received nitro, BiPAP, and still had evidence of pulmonary edema, then received diuretics, intravenous furosemide and ended up improving soon after that
1: yeah so that's 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 the the rationale is that you want to wait until the acute respiratory distress is over before you really want to give the furosemide because it just isn't going to work so what i usually do with these patients let them settle down let the bipap work let the nitrates start working by decreasing the preload and let them become less diaphoretic and clammy and and, and decrease the sympathetic output, and then you can give it a if
2: you're osomite, and you'll get prompt diuresis after that. See, in our earlier days, we wouldn't need to go there because we would have phlebotomized and, <laughs> and provide rotating tourniquets, which basically does, you know, in a crude sense, the same as LASIX, right? It, it just takes the fluid away from the heart. You know, it's, it's just a fancier way of using So Thank God we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, you,
1: you know, I think I think when you're treating a acute pulmonary patient, it's in, in the back of mind. You really have to think of the causes of heart failure: increase in preload, increase afterload, arrhythmias, or pump problems. Those are the, those are the four pro- causes of acute heart failure. So you have to reduce preload. Patients who are very hypertensive, evidence of high systemic vascular resistance, like this patient. You've got to reduce afterload. You've got to correct any arrhythmia, and then you, if there's evidence of uh, cardiac dysfunction, whatever you can do in the emergency department, it's not much you can. You can increase cardiac output with the use of BIPAP, uh, but those are the causes of congestive heart failure. So you've got to decrease preload, decrease afterload, correct arrhythmias, and help the, fu- the pump however you can.
0: The outcome of this patient was she got much better, she had a normal ECG, Uh, she diuresed, and she ended up being consulted to the internist on call. So let's go on to another case and then we can compare and contrast the two cases. Second case, a 60-year-old male patient presents to the emergency room from home with progressive increase in breathlessness, orthopnea and ankle swelling over the previous three weeks. He had suffered from dyspepsia and a wet cough increasing over recent weeks and the family physician had noted a new murmur. He denied a history of chest pain, back pain or shoulder pain. His past medical history was remarkable for CHF and an MI. His medications were aspirin, Lasix, 40 milligrams every morning, Altase, 5 milligrams once a day, and Metoprolol, 50 milligrams BID. On exam, he appeared in moderate respiratory distress. His blood pressure was 125 on 60, heart rate of 110, respiratory rate of 28, and an oxygen saturation of 88% on room air. His temp was 368 he had marked pedal edema, hepatomegaly, and JVD with bibasilar crackles. He had a pansystolic murmur heard best over the apex. The ECG confirmed sinus tachycardia of 110 beats per minute with antralateral Q waves and no ST changes. The chest x ray confirmed cardiomegaly and interstitial edema. Previous echocardiography showed a dilated heart. With anterior and septal hypokinesis and apical dilatation compatible with the previous anterior infarction, routine chemistry showed sodium of 128, potassium of 5.8, urea of 9, and a creatinine of 155. Doctor Steinhardt, how would you manage this patient, and would it be any different than you would manage? the first patient?
2: Well, we, we have only so many uh, tricks up our sleeve, and so one would consider here whether we should start with a diuretic immediately. The patient is wetter than the first case. The pressure is acceptable. Maybe we could drop it a bit, but I, I would likely be more aggressive with the diuretic earlier on, and the nitroglycerin or some sort of vasodilator more secondarily. The problem, of course, is the patient is already hyponatremic and azotemic. And this ADHERE registry shows clearly that at least 30% of patients who present with heart failure are azotemic. And there's clear association between diuretic use, increase serum creatinine, and mortality. So we have to be judicious, but I, but I think currently, and certainly the Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines currently say, give this patient 80 milligrams of Lasix via a saline lock and support the ventilation, otherwise with oxygen, if not uh getting BiPAP going quickly, I agree with Eric, sooner is better than later with this kind of patient for non-invasive ventilation, unless you want to practice your intubation skills, and start with some nitro, but but the patient, I think, needs a diuretic immediately, knowing that it may take a, a period of time, if not some tachyphylaxis and resistance uh, might be more in this kind of patient to a diuretic. So get it in early. This is a bit of a diagnostic challenge,
1: this gentleman, for a number of reasons. And, and I'm worried about him, not only because he's so hypoxemic, but also because he's got a new pansystolic murmur, which is just you know, is, this is going to have an acute new mitral insufficiency murmur for whatever reason on the basis of, you know, you always have to worry that he's got some silent ischemia, which has is now caused the rupture of a mitral valve here. So I, I'm very worried about this guy. I think this guy is sicker than he looks, to tell you the truth. Uh, despite the fact that he's normal intensive now, and he's only one hundred and ten. This guy is a sick puppy. Uh, I think you need to maximize your oxygenation, maximize your ventilation. I, I would start BIPAP on this guy immediately because your therapy because you're in a bit of, because you're between a rock and a hard stone with diuretics, morphine, you know, and, and drugs to decrease preload, decrease afterload in this guy. So I think it's essential to start BIPAP on this guy if you have BiP- BIPAP capability to decrease the work of breathing, increase your cardiac output. And this guy, the essential with this new murmur, whatever is going on there, he clearly has evidence of biventricular failure. He's got, he's got the rouse and he's got the peripheral edema. So he's got evidence of biventricular failure for e- either on the basis of the ischemia or the new valvular uh, dysfunction superimposed on ischemic heart disease. So... Uh, Oxygen, maximize oxygen, maximize ventilation with BiPAP. I would give him, despite the fact that he's got a high creatinine and a low sodium. I'd still give him uh, a diuretic. And uh, I think this is the kind of guy that you need to get to your coronary care unit or ICU quicker than later because he's got an intravenous echo. Uh, he's probably going to need some lines. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's uh, who could decompensate very quickly on you.
0: So we've discussed a little bit about when you would use diuretics. Uh, In terms of dosing, it doesn't seem like we really have any good guidelines of what kind of dosing we should be using, whether we should be using an infusion or just boluses. There is some evidence that infusion might be better than than bolus uh, furosemide. And there's take their daily oral Furosemide dose and use that as your dose as your bolus IV dose. What do you usually do in terms of dosing your furosemide?
1: Well, there are no guidelines. That's what you're alluding to. In fact, there are no emergency medicine guidelines as to what the initial dose should do. I use that. I I usually take the what their total daily doses is and and start that intravenously. And if there's no response in thirty to sixty minutes, then I'll double it. But uh, there is no consensus on what the initial emergency medicine diuretic dose should be but i think most of us would probably think that's a reasonable approach to take take the daily dose and just give that intravenously
0: there have been some studies showing that high dose furosemide increases mortality and that we should be using lower dose furosemide in the emergency department i find it a really hard clinical conundrum when you have a patient with with renal failure where you know that giving the lasix Uh, may increase their mortality, but at the same time, you know that you need higher doses that you normally give uh, to diureses. Again, those
1: are the patients you know are going to be volume overloaded though, right? Those patients are volume overloaded. So again, think about your causes of heart failure and the the first most common cause is increased preload. So again, do everything you can to to decrease preload. Nitrates, for example, really temporize you well, especially in those uh, dialysis patients who are waiting for dialysis nitrates de- to decrease preload and decrease venous return
2: so you're referring to the, the, of course they'll put a label on anything now it's what you're referring to is the cardiorenal syndrome uh as opposed to the hepatorenal syndrome uh, and there's an association with diuretic use and renal failure and increased mor- mortality uh, So the nephrologist's current frame of mind is, well, you can't do anything different in the emergency department. They'll come to dialysis, right? They'll just get progressive renal failure because what else are you going to do? And the ER doc's traditional point of view is, well, we got to squeeze water out of a rock somehow. Uh, And many people aren't even aware or sensitive to this syndrome because it happens downstream right if they were to die in our emergency department we'd be a lot more aggressive about changing or trying to change the way we we do things but we don't see the rise in creatinine in in our emergency department it happens you know days later and they're not in our emergency department and so it's a downstream effect but certainly this aside from This DOSE trial showed no change in creatinine. It's the first study, if you want to believe it at all. Again, it's not published yet, so I haven't had a chance to drill into it. From what I understand, there was no change in serum creatinine, regardless of which way or how much diuretic you gave, regardless of if the patient was presented azotemic or not. This is revolutionary. This goes against all other trials that uh, support exactly what you said, Anton.
0: In terms of patients who present with very high blood pressure you've started your iv nitroglycerin and you've ramped it up to 150 mics per minute but still they have high blood pressure what do you do next
1: so it's a difficult challenge i mean you don't see that very often i mean perhaps you're talking about a hypertensive emergency now in which case that's the kind of patient who really needs to go to the icu and you know perhaps be on a nitroprusside drip um, obviously, if they're an acute heart failure, you want to avoid beta blockers. So beta blockers are contraindicated in that particular patient. I think that's the kind of patient who really needs to go to the ICU for lines and nitroprusside and, 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 and therapies really beyond what you should be doing in an emergency
2: department. It's my perspective. To open a can of worms. There are now, okay. uh, in many centers, using intravenous ACE inhibitors uh, in the emergency department. They're actually even using now trialing intravenous calcium channel blockers with ultra-short half-lives. And uh, in Canada, we are conservative, both in the emergency environment and, and with the cardiology community, in that there are no good trials supporting intravenous ACE inhibitor Uh, use in the emergency department for heart failure patients at this time. But it does make sense. The apprehension is the potential negative inotropic effect, Uh, and that's why they give it on the floor by mouth, PO, some period of time after the patient has presented, typically hours, usually less than 24 hours from, from presentation. But this would be something to consider, uh, as as Eric says, not not in the emergency environment.
0: In, in the states, and I know they use IV enalapril and and sublingual captopril, right? Uh, what do with, we have
2: with with
1: you know, props maybe increased morbidity? I think you have to be very careful. And don't forget, a lot of these patients, for example, your second patient, uh, uh, most of these patients who have heart failure are already on an ACE inhibitor. Otherwise, they should be, and especially if, they, if there's any renal dysfunction. They they should be on an ACE inhibitor as well. So then adding an ACE inhibitor the Mm -hmm. emergency department is probably going to be of minimal benefit if they're already on ACE inhibitors at home chronically.
0: So as you've heard, the approach to these two cases are very different, and they are representative of this model of heart failure which divides patients into those who present with high blood pressure and those who present with normal blood pressure. In terms of the patient who presents with high blood pressure... They are usually the acute pulmonary edema patient and they represent about half of the acute heart failure patients. These patients tend to be older, they tend to be women, they tend to have a history of diastolic dysfunction, and they often have symptoms that present acutely over 24 to 48 hours. Because of the shorter onset of symptoms, they're much more likely to have acute pulmonary edema both on exam and on the chest x-ray rather than having systemic edema which would present with weight gain and leg edema. Pathophysiologically, the symptoms are usually the result of a significant increase in afterload and fluid misdistribution rather than total body fluid. They have pulmonary edema, crackles, And minimal weight gain, usually they have preserved systolic function. These are the kinds of patients that you want to treat with nitrates up front. And then if they're volume overloaded, you can add the diuretic. These are the patients where nitrates will work very well to decrease the preload and the afterload. And these are the kinds of patients that you're usually going to IV nitroglycerin on. In contrast, the normotensive acute heart failure patients, they usually present with mild subacute worsening of their symptoms over several days or weeks. They tend to be a bit younger and they tend to have systolic dysfunction. And a lot of them have a history of coronary artery disease. Their symptoms are generally a result of gradual total body fluid overload as opposed to the pulmonary congestion causing respiratory distress from acute hypertension. These normotensive patients tend to present with peripheral edema plus minus pulmonary edema. They tend to have a gradual onset. They tend to have a lot of weight gain they tend to have decreased systolic function. These are the kinds of patients that you want to treat up front with diuretics and consider nitrates in addition. Going on to the specific medications that we use in the emergency department for acute heart failure... For diuretics, there is some evidence, not the greatest evidence, but there is some evidence that continuous infusion is better than bolus IV diuretics. Lasix does take about 45 minutes to two hours to really start working. So you can't expect it to start working very quickly in these patients. As many as 40% of patients who present with heart failure have intravascular uvolemia or hypovolemia, and this is why for these patients, Lasix can be dangerous in terms of worsening renal function and possible increased mortality. Therefore, for patients who are uvolemic or hypovolemic, diuretics should be used very judiciously in these patients and their electrolytes should be followed carefully. There was one time I was speaking to one of our intensive care colleagues, and we had this case where we weren't sure whether it was CHF or whether it was pneumonia, and the patient's blood pressure wasn't that great. I was asking him about whether we should be giving Lasix or whether we should be giving fluid in this patient, and worried that if we gave him Lasix, that... His kidney function would worsen, and if we gave him fluids, then if it is heart failure, then his heart failure would, would worsen. And he told me that from an ICU perspective, they'd always much rather have you fluid overload a patient than dry a patient out and have their kidneys fold up. If you're ever in that situation where you're not sure whether the patient has pneumonia and might be on the verge of sepsis, versus a patient who you might think has CHF, he suggested that you give fluids and see what happens. If you give fluid and the patient goes into worsening heart failure, then you can always back off and you can always give Lasix after that. Moving on to nitroglycerin, I just want to reiterate that very high doses are often needed, especially in these hypertensive patients. Sometimes, In order to get good arterial dilatation, you need somewhere in the range of 200 mics per minute infusion. In terms of what we need to watch out for in nitro, patients who have a history of aortic stenosis or pulmonary hypertension, we have to be a little bit more careful with nitrates because these patients are very dependent on preload to maintain adequate blood pressure. As far as ACE inhibitors go, Well, on the one hand, there's evidence from small trials that sublingual captopril and IV enalapril decrease the need for mechanical ventilation and rapidly improve symptoms. On the other hand, there's no good large randomized control trials with ACE inhibitors in acute heart failure. And the 2007 Canadian guidelines on acute heart failure say they should not be used routinely. Rather, that ACE inhibitors should be used once the patient is stabilized. Moving on to morphine, the ADHERE study did show that morphine was associated with increased in-hospital mortality, ICU admits, longer hospitalization, and the patients who received morphine were also more likely to receive mechanical ventilation. But as Dr. Steinhardt pointed out, this was with very, very, very high doses that we almost never use. And so... According to Dr. Steinhardt, morphine still is an option in small doses. All right, let's go on to our last case here. This is a case that I saw about five years ago. It was a 29-year-old woman who was one week postpartum. She presented with a sudden onset of shortness of breath at home. She came in by ambulance in extremis. Uh, She was in severe respiratory distress with diffusely mottled skin. She appeared very drowsy uh, and appeared to be tiring. Her vital signs were a blood pressure of 80 on 50, heart rate of 140, respiratory rate of 40, and an O2 sat of 85% on a non-rebreather. Her JVP was through the ceiling, and there were crackles throughout her chest with uh, mild pitting edema. This was pretty much all the information I could get as they rolled in.
1: So uh, this lady is an extremist. You have to assume that she's now suffering from postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is a uh, terrible disease that can occur Um, Antenatally or up to six months postpartum. So it's something that you need to think about in a woman who's delivered, who's even out, who presents to the emergency department six months post-delivery.
0: I mean, we always think about PE in patients who are peripartum. I think it's important to think of all the other things that pregnant patients are at risk for, aortic dissection, cardiomyopathy, uh, even MI.
1: Exactly. Well, this lady is clearly presenting in cardiogenic shock. She's hypotensive, she's got rows up to, to her abuses. She's clearly, and she's killer for a cardiogenic shock. Her uh, her mortality is uh somewhere between 80, short-term mortality is somewhere between 80 and 100 percent So she's a very sick lady. You know, you know, obviously you're going to resuscitate her. She sounds like she's going to need intubation as opposed to just BIPAP if she's that hypoxic and that and she's obtunded and lethargic already. Uh so you're going to put her into Resus. She's probably going to need intubation right away. And she's probably going to need at the same time pressor support.
0: In terms of intubation, is there anything in particular in patients with acute heart failure in terms of indications for intubation or do you just do your your usual indications for intubation?
2: Well, here I would be very aggressive uh, akin to what Eric said about starting bipap really quickly in your traditional heart failure patient in the cardiogenic shock patient where, where the, every myocardio site is, is invaluable to sustain this patient and, and the risk of uh, retractable uh, myocardial damage, not to mention arrhythmias, uh, this to me is, is a no-brainer. Intubate, intubate immediately. You're not going to wait for your blood gas. You're not even going to do a blood gas immediately. And You're going to do a lot of things for this lead at the same time. You're starting the IVs. You're preparing for intubation. You
1: want to get a stat chest X-ray. You need to get a stat ECG. Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe she's having something weird. Maybe she's having a you know a STEMI, for example, right? And uh, and, and again, you're between a rock and a hard stone here because on one hand she's crackling, You want a diurese her. on the other hand, you know maybe you should give her fluids to support her blood pressure. Uh, but I think most of us would probably um, you know start a presser of some sort. And again, this is the kind of patient who really needs to go to an ICU quickly because she's going to need other types of pressers. Maybe she needs levafed preferentially, and she needs lines in. This is, you know, her high, more, more, more mortality is extremely, extremely high, so you need to do what you can to resuscitate her and get your intensivist down to help you as quickly as possible, I think.
2: And what would be your choice of presser? I've been in the field for a fair bit of time, as has Eric. Thankfully, we don't see this patient, kind of patient, uh, cardiogenic shock with forward and backward failure that frequently. Dobutamine is the kind of uh, Coca-Cola of pressers. Uh, we're familiar with it. We're familiar with its actions. Its onset is fairly quick. It's fairly easy to use. We, there's other alternatives now. Everyone talks of milrinone, uh, which acts in a different way of 5' diesterase inhibitor, but it drops pressure. It drops systemic vascular resistance, which we we don't have any leeway there. So I, I would go to dobutamine uh, if I went to a presser at this point. I would not drip in any ephedrine or phenylephrine or adrenaline or noradrenaline at this point. It would be dobutamine versus milrinone. And I, I would start with what I'm very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: believe the, the Canadian guidelines say dobutamine over milrinone. This patient was uh, intubated and started on dopamine and dobutamine, and their pressure came up to 110. After their blood pressure improved, uh, they were given a small dose of nitroglycerin before the intensivist arrived. The patient then uh, went into VTAC.
1: So you have to be careful. So there's a patient who is completely dependent on whatever systemic vascular resistance is left. He's doing something to decrease preload, decrease afterload, decrease systemic vascular resistance, but so there's nothing left. So you have to be very
2: careful in these patients. Yeah. Yeah. So the literature, again, for a very small subset of uh, heart failure patients, those in cardiogenic shock, the ADHERE registry says three percent, and I think even less in my experience, thank goodness, but. As soon as you start a a vasopressor, the mortality rate, by association, just rockets. But of course, why do you start a vasopressor? Because the patient is doing horribly. So you're you're in a bind, Mm -hmm. and uh, you may want to go for surgical support in such a case very quickly. You know, uh, intra-aortic balloon pump. We have other tricks up our sleeve in a major center like Toronto.
0: Yeah, while we were trying to set up all of the above. The patient went into VTAC. The patient was shocked. Pulse came back, and then a few minutes later, the patient went asystole right. and was unable to be resuscitated. Yeah. It does not surprise me. These patients deteriorate
2: very quickly. If anything else could have been done in this particular subset, of course, uh, they they have systemic embolization because of a baggy heart. If they don't die otherwise, so one one should consider heparinization very very quickly to prevent this very. Very kind of complication, if they survive the initial insult, and there's a high mortality associated with peripartum
1: cardiomyopathy. Some of these people, obviously, a lot of these women, uh, are not all, not everybody presents this dramatically, and a lot of people recover. But even of the of the people of the women who recover, 50% of those women have persistent ventricular dysfunction, and obviously can't or shouldn't get pregnant again. And it's one of the you know causes for uh, common causes for the need for transplants. The disease is peripartum cardiomyopathy. So it's a serious disease. So uh, somebody who comes in short of breath after giving birth, previous four or five months, consider the diagnosis and do a good physical examination, get a chest X ray, look for peripartum cardiomyopathy.
0: okay let's move on to uh disposition there are some good predictors of poor prognosis and acute heart failure uh systolic blood pressure less than 120 a low sodium a high bun high creatinine positive troponin ecg changes a bnp over 500 and poor response to initial therapy uh, and these are some of the things that can guide us help us to decide who needs to be admitted the problem comes when we're trying to decide who can go home. There's been about four different prediction rules to predict who's at risk uh, in patients with heart failure, and their, their low risk patients uh, still have about an 8% mortality rate at 30 days. So these prediction rules aren't very helpful for us uh, in terms of sending patients home because that's way too high of, of a risk. So, what's uh, your advice in terms of who should we be considering for a discharge from the emergency department? My yeah. advice
1: is be very, very careful before you send someone home with congestive heart failure. I certainly think that anybody with first episode heart failure needs to be admitted and worked up as to the etiology, needs an echo, needs thyroid function tests. I think patients who present with moderate to severe pulmonary edema, it's a no brainer too. I think those patients deserve to be admitted. And properly and, and carefully and uh, to have repeat cardiac markers. Silent ischemia is common in the elderly. A lot of these patients are elderly and may have silent ischemia. They don't necessarily have chest pain when they present. A lot of these patients are diabetic and may not have chest pain and you have to always worry about silent ischemia. Probably the only type of patient I would consider sending home and I do is the patient with known chronic congestive heart failure who is a frequent visit to the emergency department based on poor compliance with medications, poor compliance with diet, or inappropriate use of some other medications like NSAIDs, which may have precipitated the heart failure, and who's known to the emergency department, to the hospital, and has been diuresed in the emergency department before and presents with the exact same scenario. But having said that, it's important to remember that we do not have a good predictive model of which patients will go on to have a short-term adverse effect once you send them home. So you're still gambling, even with that patient, you are still gambling, not knowing what their short-term outcome is going to be. Do I send them home? Do I send some patients home? Yes. Do I sleep well at night having sent them home? No.
2: So I'll go a step further, and I agree with what Erica said. You have to ask yourself, not, not in a joking way, well, if I get these patients admitted, what will their outcome be? You mentioned eight percent mortality at thirty days uh, post-index visit. Well, what is the? How good are we? Even if we do admit these patients in reducing mortality, uh, and and the answer is, the one-year mortality for heart failure patients is thirty-three percent. It was that way when Eric and I started our practice thirty years ago. It was that way five years ago. With the multi-billion dollars of research on diagnosis and interventional medication and and new medication or changing medication and all these studies has not changed the 33 percent mortality figure at one year by one percent. This is a bad disease. These people are going to die not not always from the immediate heart failure but also it's all cause mortality at one year. Many of these patients as we talked about have Severe diabetes and high blood pressure and COPD and atherosclerotic heart disease and valvular disease, etc., etc., etc. They're elderly. So they're on a thin line. And unfortunately, even admitting these patients may in the short term help, but the long term perspective is not favorable regardless of what we do. Unfortunately, this is a bad disease. It's not all bad news. In, in fact, you know, I, I do think the overall care for patients
1: with coronary artery disease has improved significantly over the past 10 to 15 years. There's no question about it. Uh, you, you know, I, although we see congestive heart failure, we, we don't see the, as many florid pulmonary edemas as we used to see. Uh, hypertension is being controlled better by family doctors and cardiologists. Uh, we are taking uh, better care of acute coronary syndromes. We have seen the proliferation of heart failure clinics in many of our bigger hospitals, and they do really good jobs of monitoring people, monitoring people's weights and keeping people out of the emergency department. So the news is not all that bad when it comes to heart failure patients. Unfortunately, we have to remember that the population is getting older, so we will not stop seeing patients with heart failure. Uh, but you know the overall. Let's not be pessimistic. The overall management of patients with coronary artery disease has improved dramatically with the advent of antiplatelet drugs, anti-thrombotic drugs, uh, ACE inhibitors, uh, ARBs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know we, we we've done very well in managing acute coronary syndromes, and therefore reduced in many patient populations the incidence of heart failure. Unfortunately, the patient population is getting older, so we're going to continue to see patients with heart failure.
0: What? in the future should we be looking at in terms of research to help us improve all of this?
2: So what to do in the future? There are emergency physicians interested in research in this bad disease in America that now have a society going. And what they are proposing is ER ER-led research, not cardiology-led research, short timelines for Endpoints, Not 60-day post-ER visit, not one-year mortalities, but short 10-day, two-week endpoints to see what effect the emergency department uh, management has on short-term uh, care. And alluding to what I said, we're, we're, we're not impacting on mortality at one year. Let's look at other endpoints in research. Let's look at quality of life. You know, can the patient maintain their activities of daily living for two months and forget about endpoints like recidivism and, and coming back to the hospital, you know, in two months time or mortality at six months or one year. Let's, let's just go for the more uh, pragmatic approach. I, I think what we need is a predictive
1: model a better predictive model, a good validated model, which can tell us which patients are safe to send home or not. We currently do not have that. That's what we need. An emergency department-based trial, which can give us a good predictive model.
0: Well, that wraps it up for this month's episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Latovsky and Dr. Steinhardt for their words of wisdom. We've unfortunately run out of time for our quote of the month, but until next time, take it easy.